Uh, friends, I want to show you a painting to start our time today. Uh, this is a painting that many of you have probably seen at some point in your life. It's an oil painting called Head of Christ. It was painted by, <laughs> it was painted by a guy named Warner Salmon. Kevin already knows where I'm going with this. Uh, painted by a guy named Warner Salmon in 1941. And this is the most widely distributed image of Jesus that's ever been produced in human history. There are more than 500 million prints that have been made of this image. It's been plastered on the calendars and candles and put up in homes and churches all around the world. And it's an interesting image. You can probably see it a little bit here. You see kind of a light illuminated behind Jesus' head, almost like he has a halo. His gaze is off into the distance, kind of staring up toward higher things, some sort of mysterious higher thing. He's got very simple garments on, right? He looks soft and approachable. People love this image of Jesus. They hang it up in their churches. I was talking to somebody this week. They said, yeah, that was the image of Jesus that was in my church my whole life growing up. And here's the reality, friends. If you grew up seeing this image or an image like this image, it's likely that this has shaped your understanding of who Jesus is and the story you build around the life of following Jesus. That's the power that images like this have. The image that we're given of Jesus from a church, from a parent, from a friend, from a painting, those images often dictate the story we build around him and the life we choose to follow. And sometimes we don't even realize these assumptions are baked into our images of Jesus. We just accept them and then live out of them. We don't really dig into them. We don't question whether that's really like Jesus or not. For instance, there's one outstanding feature of this picture that isn't maybe quite as obvious to many of us in the room, but would have been really obvious to the people who knew Jesus. What's the feature? He's white. (laughs) He looks like a white European man. And by the way, his hair, gorgeous, right? (laughs) It's like he's in a head and shoulders commercial. This painting, (laughs) this painting places in our brains an image of Jesus as a handsome, white, European-looking man with tremendous hair. And people love that image of Jesus. They love it. 500 million of them floating around the world. Now, let me show you another image. Don't put it up yet, Adam. Don't do it! Don't do it! I'll tell you when. It was constructed back in in, uh, the early 2000s. You may remember this. Uh, Some of you have probably heard this story if you've been raised in the church at all. New Testament scholars got together with some forensic scientists. They traveled in and around Jerusalem, and they had access to skulls and skeletons from around the time of Jesus. And so they did 3D scans of as many of these skulls and skeletons as they could, and they worked to reconstruct what the face of the average Jewish man would have looked like back in the first century. It's amazing forensic science that we have now. You can do this with bodies today as well. If a body is found that's decomposed, they can take the skeleton and build a face digitally and recreate what that person more than likely looked like. And so they came up with this. This is what the average first century Jewish man looks like. Now that's way different than painting number one. Yeah, just a, just a little bit. His nose is much larger and wider. His hair is darker, more coarse. He's more hairy in general. He definitely didn't have access to head and shoulders. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying, and no one is saying, this is Jesus. We don't have a comprehensive picture of what Jesus looked like. We get little clues, but we don't have a comprehensive picture. But as best as we can tell, this is what a Jewish man from the first century would have looked like. And so it's much more likely that Jesus looked like this than Warner Salmon's painting. And this second image raises an important rhetorical question for us. Don't raise your hands, but think about it. 
would you hang this picture of Jesus up in your home? Think about it. Really think about it. And if you wouldn't, why not? Because it's less aesthetically pleasing? Because it's less beautiful? It's Jesus we're talking about. This is much more likely to be what Jesus looked like. And we say, I don't know about that Jesus. I don't know about that image. It exposes something about our human nature, right? We are often more comfortable dealing with the image of Jesus that we've created or the image of Jesus that we've been handed, even when that image is far different than what's actually true about him. And that, by the way, comes naturally to us. We do that in all sorts of relationships. Think about it in your own life. How often do you build an image of someone in your mind based on a first or second impression or based on what somebody else has told you about that person? How often do you build a story around that person without actually knowing them, right? Just me? Just, I just, I'm the only one? No, we all do that, right? We build these stories around people without actually knowing who they are. And is that the best way to get to know someone? Building a story based on your first impression. Building a story based on what you've heard. No, right? Most of the time, the best way to get to know someone is to spend time with them. And we often find that the more time we spend with them, well, the less accurate our first and second impressions really were. Friends, every one of us comes into this room with some preloaded image of Jesus in our minds and in our hearts. Some of you may have a, a challenging image of Jesus. It's one that has been handed to you by Christians that maybe haven't been the kindest. They haven't represented Jesus well. And so uh, the image of Jesus that you have has hooks in him that are really hard to unhook. Maybe the image of Jesus you have is a good one. It's one that gives you comfort and peace. You've encountered Jesus in really powerful ways. Maybe the image of Jesus you have is kind of fuzzy. Maybe you're like, well, I know some Jesus' stories, and I know he was a good moral teacher, but I don't really have this full picture of him. But whatever image you carry with you, here's what you need to know, friends. The only way that you get to know Jesus, the only way that you understand who Jesus is and what a life of following him looks like is if you spend more time with him. It's the only way. We have to explore what he said about himself we have to explore what he did and what he continues to do. And we have to allow him to shape our image of him. We don't get to decide who he is. And that process takes humility. Because it means acknowledging that my current understanding or my current experience might not be comprehensive. It takes curiosity. We have to be willing to explore over and over and over again who Jesus is. And it takes community. It takes listening and hearing what the experiences of others have been. You don't sail a boat across the Atlantic Ocean without a map. That map has been put together by a community of people for thousands of years that have said, this is what the Atlantic is like. We do the same thing in following Jesus. We learn from one another, from the scriptures. And so this is precisely why we've started this new sermon series at Midtown, The Transformed Life. For the next 10 weeks in our community groups, for the next seven weeks on Sundays, we're going to be looking at the essential foundational structures of Jesus, who he was, what his story was, what that means for us, and then how we can get near to him, what it means to get close to him, what it means to spend time with him. And that's what each of those subjects are that I mentioned before. The hope is that this allows all of us as a community to get near to Jesus. Because when we do that, when we spend time, get near and close to Jesus, his love, his mercy, his character, it will radically transform us. And it will radically transform the world around us. Jesus isn't off in the distance. He's come to us. We can know him and learn from him. 
So I'm excited to kick off this series. Oh, we can take down uh, that Jesus because I'm sure people don't want uh, him staring at him the whole time today. Uh, Adam, you can throw up the, the sermon series graphic. Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, guys, we are kicking off this Transformed Life series by looking at the first two parts of those 10 items that I listed before. We're looking at the story of God and the scriptures and how we encounter Jesus in those spaces. And we're going to learn about it from two disciples a long, long time ago on a road to a town called Emmaus. So if you have a Bible, turn in it with me to the Gospel of Luke. This is the third book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. I'll look for the big number 24. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24. And then the little number 13. We're going to start in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. Uh, you can read the words behind me on the screen. They're going to be up there. We also have free Bibles on the way out. Uh, so get a free book. Free books are never a bad thing. Get a free book on your way out uh, when you leave today so that you can have it for your own reading and have it uh, for your time with us. Luke 24 starting in verse 13. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have taken place these last days? He asked him, What things? And they replied, well, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. And moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he, Jesus, the stranger, said to them, Oh, how foolish you are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. And as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he was going on. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. It's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? And so that same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was the cruelest of endings. For centuries, the Jewish people had been waiting for a regime change. They had suffered oppression under many of the ancient empires that we learn about in our history books. Assyria, Babylon, 
Persia, Greece, and Rome. Over and over again, these people were oppressed and cried out to God to deliver them from evil, from death. And God heard their cries. He remained faithful to these people, and he promised a king who would bring mercy, a king who would bring justice, a king who would bring healing and life to all things, a king who would overthrow the abusive power structures of the world and establish lasting peace. And then, in the first century, a group of people were persuaded to believe that a man named Jesus was that king. And they were persuaded to believe that because Jesus said it about himself. Jesus said that he had come to bring the kingdom of God, that it was finally here. And so many people embraced him. And many people followed him. Many people celebrated his eventual entry into the city of Jerusalem as the arrival of God's king. They sung songs as he entered. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It was the triumphal entry. The one who had finally come to flip all the corrupt powers of the world on their head and bring God's true justice, his true peace, his true mercy. But it was the cruelest of endings. Because only a few days later, one of Jesus' closest friends betrayed him. Turned him in to those who wanted to kill him. In the dark of night, the slimy and corrupt religious leaders put on a false trial full of sham testimonies. They beat him, they accosted him, they accused him of blasphemy. And they dragged him to Pilate, who was the Roman governor of that area. A political leader who was far more concerned with his career, with maintaining his own power, than he was with truth. And so he looks in the eyes of truth. And they appeal, the Jewish leaders, to Pilate, saying, kill him. We want him out of here. And Pilate doesn't want a mob on his hands. And so he authorizes the killing of this Messiah. He had him flogged, crucified. And only five days after everyone was singing Hosanna, at the arrival of the king, Jesus was hung on a tree. He was crucified. He died and he was buried. And that was it. All the hopes, all the dreams of redemption They'd been crushed on that cross. The story ended as they always seem to end in the world. Power squelched the humble and lowly. Pain and death and suffering and grief had won. Brokenness got the final word then. And so despair was the only thing left for the disciples. They were dejected, depressed, disenchanted, And eventually, three days later, two of these hundreds of disciples in Jerusalem decided it was time to give up because they knew that the cross was the end of things. That's how the cross worked. The cross was the ultimate symbol that the empire would crush you. And so they began to walk. Really, they began to limp back home from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It was about a three-hour walk in that day, a small little village. All their hope for peace and life had been bound to two beams of wood and then buried behind them. They walked a hopeless road together. And as they walked and they talked, as they kept picking the scab of their grief and hopelessness, they hardly noticed that they were joined by someone else. A third stranger walked in their midst. And he spoke to them. He said to them, hey, what are you talking about? And they're like, we're talking about the things that just, are you the only person that doesn't, do you not check your Apple News? Have you not been on Twitter? This has been all over the place. He's like, what has? 
What things? And we're clued into it, right? We're clued into who this is. And that's a deeply ironic statement in this story. Jesus says, what things? They're the things about him. He's the only person who actually knows what's going on here. And he's like, oh, tell me. Tell me about him. And so they stopped in their tracks. They're sad. They're confused. You can imagine a short, pregnant pause, despair hanging in the air. And then they relive what had happened. They say, well, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And our chief priests and leaders, the very people who should have recognized him, who should have known him, they handed him over to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. As it turns out, death won, as it always does. And we don't know what else to do or where to go. And the stranger paused slightly with them as they walked. He nodded his head, and then he answered, well, you must not read your Bible very much, do you? And they're like, what? Excuse me? He's like, well, you must not read your Bible. You must not be familiar with it because you would know, if you did, that whenever the king comes from God, he must first suffer. Before bringing redemption and restoration of all things, he must first go through death and then into death and then take death's best shot and then step on death afterward. That's what this whole story has been about. And then he proceeds to walk them through the entire library of scriptures. This whole thing. What I wouldn't give to hear that podcast, right? He starts them off in Genesis. He reminds them that humans were made to live in harmony with God, with one another, and with all creation. That they were distinctly made as partners with God to bring love and flourishing to all things. And then he reminds them of the tragedy that followed that creation when humans deceive themselves into believing that their purpose and goal wasn't mutual flourishing, wasn't love of God and others in the world, it was instead selfish taking and grasping and redefining good on their own terms. They disordered their lives. They prioritized and loved the wrong things in the wrong ways at the wrong times. They made themselves rulers, gods over their own life. And suddenly, pain and death and sin and suffering defined the human condition. Because humans chose it. They chose to redefine what God had given them as good, define it on their own terms. But the stranger keeps going in the story. See, God promises that he will bring redemption and restoration. And those two things, by the way, aren't going to come through the condemnation of the bad guys and the elevation of the good guys. It's not going to come as most of us think. See, most of us think that the suffering and pain and brokenness in the world, it's out there. It's a problem beyond ourselves, right? And if we can just isolate the baddies and get rid of the baddies and move them out of the way, if cooler heads can prevail, then we'll bring true life and peace. But the reality is that all the same stuff we condemn out there runs right through here. The same things. And so if we're to destroy the baddies, that means we've got to destroy our own hearts. And God refuses to do that. God refuses to get rid of all this because he loves his creation. He wants to see his creation restored. And so he sets in motion a plan of redemption that isn't about setting apart the good guys from the bad guys. It's about defeating the very thing that corrupts everyone. It's about taking on that power, going straight into it, going straight through it, and then crushing it so that it can't rule humanity again. And so that humanity can be led out of their brokenness and into true life. God desires that all people be saved, not condemned, be saved. And so he comes face to face with the consequence of our wrong choices, and he goes straight through it and defeats it. Friends, the story of the Bible isn't the story of people 
who were good enough for God. The story of the Bible is the story of a God who was good enough to go through the death and evil of our world and bring life to all people on the other side of it. That's what the Bible's talking about. That's what this whole story has been pointing to. That's what all the scriptures are about. This is how God has always worked. He's always gone into death and brought life on the other side of it. Think about it in these scriptures. Think about what Jesus might have mentioned. It's Noah, through the death of the flood and into new life. It's Joseph, descending down into Egypt, deeper and darker into prison and surefire death, and then emerging into rulership on the other side of it. It's David, through the valley of the shadow of death at the hands of Saul, into kingship. It's the whole nation of Israel into the death of exile and then freed on the other side of it. This whole story has been giving us image after image after image after image of what God is doing and then people failing in the midst of what God is doing until Jesus shows up. He's the culmination of what the whole story has been about. This whole library of texts is about him. He's the culmination of what God said he would do all along. He's redeeming all people through their death and bringing them to life. And so the death of Jesus, friends, is not a failure. It's a success. It's the defeat of sin and death and brokenness and pain once for all. And that means that the thing that most looked like abject failure to the disciples is the most successful thing that Jesus ever did. Turns out the image they had about Jesus needed to be changed, right? It needed to be reformed. It needed to be shifted. See, they wanted a Messiah who would come and justify them and condemn all of their enemies, but God's Messiah showed up and loved and forgave their enemies. They wanted a Messiah who would give them political rule and power, but God's Messiah ushered in a kingdom that transcended any political ideology. They wanted a Messiah who would assert their power and rule and judgment, and God's Messiah was a servant, one who died for his enemies rather than crushing them, and who prompted every one of us to sacrificial love. And before they knew it, two hours had passed by, all of that Bible podcasting. They arrived at Emmaus, and this stranger was about to move on from them, but they said, hey, stay with us. Back in the day, walking alone at night in the ancient world wasn't the safest thing. They were saying, hey, stay with us. We want to keep talking. And so he did. And as they were about to eat a meal, he asked if he could give the blessing. And so he gave thanks, he broke the bread, and he gave it to them. And when he did, suddenly, The eyes of these two were opened. This was no stranger in their midst. This was Jesus. The risen, real, resurrected Jesus in their midst. And then he disappeared. And immediately they looked at each other with excitement. They said, did not our hearts burn within us when he read through the scriptures with us, when he enlightened us to what God has been doing? And so immediately they ran back to Jerusalem. Remember, this is nighttime. Dangerous move. Running back to Jerusalem immediately. And then they go and tell the disciples. They tell them what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. On the road, through the scripture, in the bread. On the road, through the scripture, in the bread. These are the three places that these disciples encountered the risen, living Jesus. The three places that their lives were utterly transformed by him. And it's precisely those three places, friends, that we encounter the living Jesus today. First, on the road. The road that these two walk is the same road that we often walk in our lives. It's a road that was prompted by death and sin and pain. A road that was defined by hopelessness. 
We know what that's about in our lives. We are in the midst of an insane mental health crisis in the US today. During the last 12 years, the share of American high school students who, sell, who said they had persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26% to nearly 50% in the last 12 years. Nearly one in two teenagers that you meet today say they are constantly plagued by sadness and hopelessness. But it's not just teenagers. According to another poll done by the CDC, 51% of Americans in their 20s reported the same thing. Half of the people that you meet in their 20s are constantly plagued by hopelessness. And it's true beyond just those young demographics. Antidepressant usage has risen 35% for all Americans in the last six years alone. 35%. Nations are warring against nations. Ethnic and economic oppression runs rampant. We are caught in an inescapable web of human selfishness and pride and greed, and each of us is complicit in it. We know what hopelessness is like. It's likely that you walk into this room right now, today, feeling the weight of that in some form in your life. Or a family member, some form, feeling hopelessness in your life right now. But friends, in the middle of that road, on the road to amazement, on the road of death, the road defined by destruction and pain, there's an astounding truth. That Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is resurrected. Jesus Christ conquered death. He defeated it, which means that we can expect to encounter Jesus even in the most unexpected, hopeless places of our lives precisely on the road that seems to be defined by death and pain, in surprising ways that we don't even often notice in the moment, Jesus shows up. You can expect that in your life because he's alive. Death hasn't won. The road is not defined by death. But these two amazed disciples didn't see him. They had a two-hour-long conversation, maybe three-hour-long conversation with Jesus, and they missed him. How does that happen? How is it that you can be right next to Jesus and not recognize him? Well, because their story was defined by what the world had given them. And they knew that death won. They knew. They knew that there really wasn't hope. They knew that only grief and pain and death could exist on the road. The only reality that they could picture is the one that was defined by their vision of the cross, by the failure of the cross. And so they couldn't recognize the living Christ even though he was right in front of them. And aren't we often the same in our own lives? If we're really honest about it? Are we not so often constrained by the story that death or anxiety or depression or pain reigns and rules and that there's no other possible reality? Are we not often so consumed with the dark disfigurements of our world that we can't seem to see anything else? That's how we live our lives all the time. We miss what Jesus is doing, even though he's right in front of us. Friends, tell me what you see in this image up here. That one. What do you guys see? Shout it out. A dot. Yes, correct. You have won. You've got an A. There's a dot on that screen. But is that all that's there? What else is there? A whole bunch of white space, right? Actually, that dot is a small percentage of the larger picture. But isn't it interesting that when we look at that image, the first thing we see is the dot. It's a tiny percentage, but it's the first thing we see. We live our lives the same way. 
the first thing we see, and oftentimes the only thing we see is the death and the destruction and the pain and the anxiety. Friends, those things are getting overwhelmed. This dot is getting overwhelmed by what's happening around it, consumed. But it's human nature to see the black dot on the road. And to be clear, we should see the black dot. It's there, it's real, we should grieve it, we should mourn it, certainly. But we should also remember that it doesn't win because Jesus went into it. He went through it and he stomped it out so that death never wins, so that sin never wins, so that brokenness never wins. He's always showing up to do the same thing for us today as he did for these Emmaus disciples. And sometimes we don't even notice it when it happens. Sometimes he shows up to us like he did for them, like a stranger, a coworker, a neighbor, a serendipitous interaction, a seeming coincidence. Have you ever had a moment like that in your life? Where you've interacted with someone who said the exact thing that you needed to hear or did the exact thing that you needed that you didn't even articulate to them? They just showed up in your life and did that for you? That's Jesus on the road, friends. The stranger that we don't recognize until later. We look back and say, oh, that was God. And I say all this, friends, not just because it's a fun story in the Bible. I don't just say this because it's fun to explore this idea. I say it because I've lived it. I say it because I've walked the road of death. I watched as a boy as my father died, stripped of his life. And I watched as I was met by strangers on the road. I heard and saw exactly what I needed to hear and see in the people who loved me. I sensed what I can only describe as an otherworldly peace in and around me. I have met Jesus on the road. And I know countless others who have as well. Just ask around this room a little bit. I know of a boy who saw death face to face in the midst of a concentration camp and whose life was saved by the actions of the wife of his captor, a stranger to him. And that man now works to grow and help business owners thrive in countless villages all across the world, including in his home country. I know of another man who sat in a car in a Walmart parking lot with a gun, ready to end his life. And he was approached by someone, a stranger, and asked if he was all right. And he chose not to end his life that night. And now that man works to provide food and shelter for the poor and needy in his city. That's Jesus on the road. That's Jesus on the road. So friends, in the middle of your walk, in the middle of your road, whatever you're carrying with you into this place today, where might be Jesus at work on your road? And will you recognize him? Will you turn your attention from the dot just long enough to recognize what he's doing? Because death will lose. Jesus has made sure of it. Will you look for him on the road? And these disciples don't just see Jesus on the road. They see him through the scriptures. Notice that when their eyes start to get opened, it's when Jesus unfolds the scriptures for them. Their journey on the road of hopelessness and pain and death, it leads them straight into, through the scriptures. They bring all of their doubt, they bring all of their worry, they bring all of their hopelessness here. And then they listen to this story. They allow this story to shape them. And they learn about a God who is at work bringing redemption and restoration to all things and all people. They learn about a God who is forgiving and loving and who brings peace and life into the world. They learn about a God who is made known to them in Jesus. That is critical to remember, friends. Every time we open the pages of these texts, we are invited into an opportunity to encounter the living Jesus. 
And it's not that these pages themselves are literally divine. These are words on a page. But the words are pointing to the ultimate truth of who Jesus is. There's a theologian named Karl Barth who talked about this. He called scripture the lowercase word that points to the uppercase word, Jesus. This whole collection illuminates to us who he is. And that's crucial because oftentimes when we open up these texts, they can be hard to read sometimes. They can be challenging. They can provoke questions in us. They can be off-putting or confusing. They can leave us with more questions and answers. But Jesus tells us that when we dive into this, and when we dig into those questions more deeply, we will see him more clearly. He says that this whole thing helps us understand him. And so when we come to those questions or those challenges, we don't run from them. We don't say, well, this is a block. I've hit the wall. The wall has been torn down by Jesus. He says that this whole thing is pointing to him. We read these texts through the lens of who Jesus is. And that's why we've created this part of the Transform Life curriculum for you to go through in your groups. Because we want to be a community here that digs deeply, deeply into those questions. It doesn't shy away from the Bible. And so Jesus' invitation and our hope here at Midtown is that we keep digging together into these texts. So read them. Listen to them. Ask questions about them. Write down in a journal everything that confuses you and that's weird. Because I promise you, it hasn't just been weird to you. For thousands of years, Christians have asked questions about these texts. And every time they've dug deeper, they found a more holistic, a more robust picture of who Christ is. So ponder the divine that's here, revealed to us in these pages. And remember that whatever we have to say about ourselves and about God is defined by Jesus. So we find Jesus on the road. We find Jesus through the scriptures, but not just those two places. We also find him in the bread. Notice, after Jesus' Bible nerd sesh with these two, it seems like he's going to keep walking. It seems like he's going to keep going. Which is important to remember. He doesn't force himself onto these people. Jesus isn't going to coerce you guys. He's going to tell you the truth. He's going to live out the truth. And then he's going to say, what are you going to do? He's not going to coerce you. That's not who he is. He's invitational, but he's not coercive. And it's up to all of us how we respond. And these disciples respond by inviting Jesus in. By saying, we want to receive you. We want to learn more about you. We want to spend more time with you. And so they invite the stranger. They don't know it's him yet, but they invite him in. They started digging into these texts like, this is a really curious story. We want to learn more. And then Jesus, during their meal, takes bread, gives thanks, and breaks it. Now that should sound familiar to those of us that know the biblical story. What's that sound like? The Last Supper. Jesus' last meal that he ate with his disciples. And what did he indicate about the bread that he broke that day? He said it's his broken body given for them. He actually told the disciples ahead of time what was happening. They just missed it. He said that this is an image of his act of taking on death and suffering, and that when he rises again, death and suffering no longer win, and that he can usher them into new life. And it's only when Jesus breaks the bread for them and gives it to them, when they receive Christ's presence in the midst of community, that they begin to experience the real powerful presence of Jesus in their midst. Their eyes are opened. So the road and the scriptures lead them to the bread to seek the forgiveness of Christ, to receive his life in their own, in communion with others. And that's why we go to this table every week, you guys. That's why. We come into this space from the road of life. We are compelled and drawn in by the grand story of God unfolded for us here. And in the bread, we finally see him. 
clearly. It's in the bread that the radical message of Jesus starts to transform us. It's there that we're given a chance to confess our needs for him, confess all the ways that we failed, all the things that we've done and failed to do. It's here that we're reminded of his forgiveness, that he always receives us with grace. It's here that we receive his life in ours. This is the very presence of the living Jesus in our midst. If we do nothing else well on a Sunday, we encounter the living Jesus at this table. Friends, the God of the universe takes on our death-riddled condition. The God of the universe confronts his enemies by dying for his enemies. He experiences all of the power of death, and then he rises again so that none of us would have to. That's the gospel. Jesus meets us on the road. So will we recognize him? When Jesus meets us in the scriptures, will we dig into them? And Jesus meets us in the bread. Will we commune with him? Will we receive him and commune with others? My invitation to every one of you today is to catch a glimpse of what those first two disciples caught a glimpse of. Because Jesus is here. He's alive. He's walking up and down these aisles, healing right now. Will you see him? Let's pray, friends.